Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Niles Lichtenstein is the co-founder and CEO of Nestment, a platform that aims to democratize home buying through co-ownership. After stints in the corporate world, Niles went on to founding teams at several startups in the mobile tech space and in B2B SaaS. During this time, he grew passionate about helping friends and family purchase homes and vacation rentals. He was also noticing the changing demographic and the changing economy for his millennial peers and realized a new path of home ownership was possible. In this episode, we discuss the whole co-ownership model as it relates to real estate, the real estate market headwinds and how they're actually tailwinds for disruption, the connection between one's childhood and launching a startup, and so much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Niles. We'll talk a lot about commonalities, I think, on this call because, you know, everybody is experiencing this unique environment that we're in with high interest rates. You know, the Fed funds rate is sitting at 5.25%. I think one year ago it was at 1.75%. On our side of the border, similar story as it relates to interest rates, 5% is the current Bank of Canada rate. We're sitting here July of 2023. A year ago, it was 2.5%. So I'm just curious, You know, we'll get into Nesman in a moment, but I guess I've got a, a two-part question for you considering the value proposition that you're bringing to the market. One is, what is the current state of the housing market in expensive urban areas like San Francisco, New York, LA, Boston, et cetera? And where do you think things are heading next in terms of housing costs and affordability. If you look at the Urban Institute data in the US, if you just take the average, I think only 20% of homes can be purchased at the median incomes in those areas, right? You go to a place like LA, interestingly enough, LA is I think closer to like 2% and San Francisco is around 9%, right? And so what you're just seeing is that your median income and your property prices are way out of whack. And there's a huge disparity. And, and we know that's what's happened to wage growth. A little bit of that's getting made up with, with kind of recent increases in state and local minimum wages, but that exists. And so property prices, you know, are way above where people would see them in past generations. The other thing that I think has been fascinating is if you look at from 2019, to 2022, the cost of, or you would need double the salary to buy the same home. And that's because of what you just talked about, the interest rate rises. And, you know, interest rates have risen dramatically, incredibly quickly. At the same time, prices, while they've flattened in some places, they've decreased slightly. Yes, there's more potential deals to be found. They haven't declined at the rate at which interest rates have gone up. So the total cost of homeownership, I'm going to say this again, that 
you need double the salary to buy the same home, right? No one's going to double their salary in three years, right? So you have to change the demand side of that equation. You also have to change the supply side of that equation as well, right? So you need to have more supply, but that takes time. The other issue is no one wants to give up their you know, 3% interest rate mortgage, right? So you're not going to have a lot of people who say like, now's a great time for me to sell because I've got this, you know, really great kind of um, mortgage on on my property unless there's a, a specific reason to do so or unless they can gain some liquidity and, and keep maintain their mortgage. So where we see this going in the future, I mean, I, I think, you know, right now it's hard to tell. We know that the Fed has a couple ticks, uh, awaiting going up. Um, it's not always correlated to mortgage rates, but you know, it's not going down. Interest rates are not going down anytime in the immediate future, right? And so that continues to put pressure on some prices in the market and we'll see. But I think that creates lots of opportunities now for this model of co-ownership where people can kind of pool their capital and unlock the equity earlier. Okay, so let's talk about that. So Nestman is this phenomenal platform that aims to democratize home buying through the enabling of co-ownership. Co-ownership, I would say, is probably not a concept that is that well understood. Do you feel like a good chunk of your success as a company hinges on your ability to actually educate people as to why co-ownership is a good alternative to, say, renting or buying something alone? Definitely. I, I mean, I think with any movement, there is a lot of education that's needed because there's also just a lot of ingrained beliefs that are a part of it. I will say what is interesting is I don't know if I've met many people, or at least let's just say nine out of 10 people have probably had the conversation over a meal or a bottle of wine where they've said to friends or family, hey, why don't we go and buy this house together? It may be in the context of a vacation place or it may be in the context of an investment property. So the interesting thing is the concept itself, people get immediately. But I think where the education happens is, okay, well, how do you actually go through the process? What are the steps? And that's really where, you know, we come in as Nesmit is having experienced this myself and in, in co-owned a number of properties, right? There were all of this friction in the process that we really wanted to eliminate. And that's been been really important. And the other thing, frankly, is, you know, especially because we tend to focus on a youngish demographic millennial and even some Gen Z buyers. That there's also you're doing first-time home buying education at the same time. The other thing I'd say is that there's a lot of immigrant communities that have understood this notion of cooperative economics, and it's not so foreign to them, right? They don't have the same structures to allow for the right, you know, maybe operating agreements or the right financing and lending or things of that nature, but. For centuries, people have been saying, hey, you know, let's go in with our uncle and auntie and let's try to be able to purchase this property. Maybe it's the auntie with the good W-2 who's on the loan and, and, and everyone else is putting in cash and there's, you know, side agreements and things of that nature. 
So, you know, whether you saw Tandas in Latino communities or Kwe's in Chinese communities or Susu's in Caribbean communities, these are our ideas that they just haven't been necessarily in our structure or structurally pronounced or expressed, but they still happen and they do happen. It's cool that people are diving into this. You talked a little bit about friction points. What are those friction points that people perhaps are surprised by or that they misunderstood, even if they get the concept of co-purchasing or co-home ownership? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think there's the first real big friction point is just alignment within the group, right? There's everyone being on the same page. It's nice to talk about owning a property together over a glass of wine and and you get to just fantasize about it. But then when you actually get together and talk through what can everyone afford for a down payment. And so aligning on that, you know, one of the things that was important for us to do is build in all of the data so that someone could see, hey, if we owned this vacation property or this investment property or this multifamily that we lived in but rented out, you know, how would my rental income kind of offset expenses? How many days could we stay there and and still it would break even? So essentially have a have a place that we could get away to that pays for itself, right? So there's there's a lot of this both financial analysis, but also just alignment within the group that has to happen. And that's something that we try to guide people through. And then we have a whole set of tools. I used to, you know, with my first kind of co-ownership um, properties, I was the guy who had to build these models and I was taking probably subpar data, you know, and I was admittedly told all my other friends and family I was co-buying with like, hey, you know, this is the data I have access to. Now we have access to much better data. We can, with a click of the button, you're you're getting these kind of th- that financial analysis. The next part is really around lending and financing, like where there's a lot of opportunities. And I think lenders, I will say in some ways, a market, a housing market that's experiencing headwinds is actually somewhat of a tailwind for new and disruptive models like Nesmit, right? Because you now have your agents who at one point realtors who, you know, they'll entertain a lead, but realistically they know a lot of groups fall apart, right? And so, you know, their time is money. And I remember being part of a group and met some great agents, but I don't think we got the same level of treatment because they're like, oh, it's when people and friends are coming together, it's going to fall apart, right? Like there's just too many moving parts. So one of the things, you know, getting folks ready where they're pre-approved for lending, where they've already started their operating agreement, our partner agents know that when we bring a group to them, that group has gotten through a lot of these first steps. And then on the lending and financing side, deciding how you're going to hold that property post-close, if it's going to go into, say, potentially an LLC. In some cases, where is it going to be a TIC? And then where, you know, who who's on the loan versus how the LLC governs it. There's there's a, a few different steps that we try to just make a lot easier for those users. And the goal is, look, there's a lot of nuances and complexity. And our goal from the beginning, and this is why, like, we took Nesmit before it even launched into its beta, this public beta in February. We took it to the CFPB. We took it to you know DC, shared it with GSEs like Freddie and Fannie because the goal of this is not to try to hack the system, right? But the system's already being hacked in a lot of ways. If you can find ways to make this work, the goal is to 
create models that resonate with a new form of buyer, new family type, new sense of we can build community and build wealth together. You talk about these friction points, which to me are on the buy side. But what about on the other side of this? So if if I jump into a co-ownership model with, say, two or three other individuals, there could be a point that one investor or owner has a change in financial situation and therefore has different motivations around what to do with the property, i.e. potentially sell it. Perhaps they decide they want to rent it. Maybe another partner wants to renovate, whereas another party doesn't. I mean, there's all these conflicts that would potentially arise in this type of a model. So how do you folks address those as they come up? And how do you advise folks that are diving into this for the first time? We have an operating agreement builder that really takes a, a big portion. What we found is it was interesting because one of the biggest, I think, friction points for most groups, and they would state this, is you know the legal and the operating agreement being on the same page with these things. But after they went through a 30-minute to 45-minute questionnaire, they tended to feel a lot better about it, right? And so what we try to do is help people through that process of making some of those decisions. So that's how a lot of the decisions are made. And then been building out the dashboard that allows folks to then import those rules. And I think it helps being a third party, right? So I think one of the the toughest things is when you're the one writing the emails or you don't have the data to point to. So we've been actively with groups who have been doing this transactions, we're building a whole management dashboard, which is the next component of the company that we're focused on. How are people not only purchasing in a co-buying fashion, but then actually managing that co-ownership? And then the last piece is actually the exit process. People want to know that there's off-ramps, right? And so within the operating agreement and within the dashboard, you're able to then sell to your, your other owners. They get first right of refusal. The second ability is to potentially look at friends and family as a private network that you're able to sell your portion. And then, you know, what we're really excited about is building out this exchange where you can actually put that portion on the exchange. And and what's interesting is it also can happen in reverse, right? You can start to have sellers who maybe own 100% of a home. Maybe it's a second home and and they wouldn't mind sharing it or or gaining some liquidity from it. And so they'll want to sell 25%. So that it actually ends up working both ways that there becomes this off-ramp for folks to sell. There's also certain clauses in these agreements where the whole group has to sell if XYZ happens. What is the business model? Like, how do you make money? Do you make money solely when a transaction gets completed? Or are you taking money from users who are using the platform initially? How does this work? Yeah, we don't take any money. You know, there's there's enough desire from the ecosystem to see transactions happen. So we work with agents where we share the revenue commission. So the buying agent commission is how we make a lot of the money on the transaction side. And then with the management dashboard that we're rolling out, you know, there's going to be a, a SaaS fee, right? That's a you know, minimal for such a large asset, but still a meaningful SaaS fee that helps manage the property and and the process. And we connect you with your property manager. And so you're looking at your P&L, what your equity value is, if it's a short-term rental that you're all going up there, your group calendar, things of that nature. So 
And there's a whole set of services actually that come into play during this time. We were looking at, you know, furnishing properties, doing a few other things. So there's a way to to make both recurring revenue there and um, take fees. And then on the same way as we're making, you know, about 1% of the transaction on the front side, as people are exiting, we're making 1% of the exit as well. You guys just completed a three and a half million pre-seed, I think, and among the cohort of investors was Airbnb, among others. You also note that 70% of your investors are investors of color. What else is unique about the syndicate of investors that you brought in thus far? So yeah, we were very intentional about this round. And I think, you know, if, if there's any advice for early stage founders where you can, you know, find the folks that really make a lot of sense for uh, what you're doing. Um, you know, in, in our case, we had a mix of prop tech investors, also blockchain investors, folks who do blockchain and Web3 really well. There's a, a larger kind of thesis around being able to take some complexity out of the system by having a fractional supply on chain. Now that's years into the future. We have to get people used to just, you know, fractional ownership and co-ownership models first. There was also, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a really important tie-in to communities of color. So great funds like Concrete Rose or Bombos Ventures were important for us to to bring on because they really work with communities of color, founders of color. And uh, someone like a Concrete Rose actually gives 50% of their carry back to nonprofits, right, that are focusing on tech equity and things of that nature, which I thought was really an important thing. So we we ended up bringing together, you know, different folks to play different roles in that investor base. And uh, no, it's been, it's been exciting working with all of them. So, I mean, you've seen the changing demographic and the economic trends for this millennial cohort as well as Gen Z. You've been studying that for a while now. You also talk about these cultural elements that are at play. For you personally, why is this venture so meaningful to you as a founder? And how do you think about it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we do things and then sometimes it's the story that drives them and sometimes we start going down a path and realize the story was always there in a way. So, you know, when I think about the origin story for Nesmith, I really go back to, I grew up in the Bay Area, um, was born in Oakland and then we, our first home was then in Berkeley. And my father passed when I was young, 13 at the time, you know, and my mom was an immigrant to the country and she didn't have a job or much community support. And so my brother, myself, and my mom are really close knit and we kind of came together. And, and at an early age, I learned how to refinance a house because we were fortunate to have a house in a place that had gained and appreciated over time. And you know, so helped that process. Um, then the other thing we did is we started renting out rooms to UC Berkeley graduate students. So, and you know, at the time you do what you you have to do, but it was quite a bit of fun. I mean, we had, you know, uh, Swedish physicists or Taiwanese architects sitting at the dinner table and outside of sharing bathrooms, it was pretty fun for the, for the, the most part. But I think what I didn't realize until years later, and now I'm a father of two, was just how that brought a sense of stability. When I went to Harvard for undergrad and then, you know, did some of my obligatory time in New York City in, in, in my early 20s, and then I came back to the Bay Area. And then after the first startup in, 
in mobile technology, I was able to have a little bit of extra capital and um, I saw a lot of my my family members and friends were priced out of the market and so started working on how we could buy kind of a couple multifamily buildings and allow us to go through the process and, and be homeowners. And what's meaningful is, you know, that that was 2013, a bunch of companies had IPO'd, like the price of property had started to really drift up post-recession. But then you take like eight or nine years later where we can refinance, you know, before rates went up in early 2022. And that's a really meaningful check for everyone, right? And where did people want to spend that check next? Real estate, right? So it was it was kind of a virtuous cycle in that way. There was an article recently I just posted on LinkedIn. My wife is an interior designer and I didn't even know what the title was going to be because this was for her firm, but it says, you know, interior designer gets dream home through co-buying, right? So, you know, we live that co-buy life too, right? We We live in a co-owned triplex in the middle of, of, of Knob Hill in, in San Francisco. And uh, San Francisco is a very expensive place, right? And this is a way to make sure that, you know, uh, we can we can afford it. I mean, there's so many questions that come to mind. You, you sort of glossed over this piece, but this experience with co-ownership or co-ownership by default when you were a child, you then go to Harvard, you spend time in the corporate world consulting, banking, et cetera. You come back into the tech space. You're in the B2B SaaS world for some time. Um, and then you come back to basically what I see as your roots in a way. And you develop a startup around what you knew and what you experienced as a young child. So do you think that your upbringing plays a role in the early seeds for Nesmond, and do you think having not had that experience as a child, say losing your father, having to kind of co-own or rent out these rooms to Berkeley students by default, if you didn't go through through that, that you would be here today with Nesmond? Adam, that is an uh, amazing question, and the answer is no, I wouldn't be here with Nesmond, right? And I think I've always, because of that experience. You know, again, home, space, things like that, people feel differently about that. Some people feel like I would never share my home with somebody. I guess the same way someone, you know, people maybe felt about Airbnb or Uber at some point in time, right? And we work. Adam Newman's early childhood and his experience on a kibbutz in Israel. I mean, would he have started WeWork and had the sort of community element to it had he not had the childhood that he did? I, I don't know. That's that's exactly right. And you're in and so to me this came natural. I think actually in some ways what came natural was my desire to make real estate work for friends and family in the Bay Area, right? And then that led to Nesmit, right? And that desire that like, hey, we can make this work, right? We don't have to be a generation of renters. Right. You know, we can be a generation of owners. We're just going to do it a little bit differently than other folks. And so you're, you're very right. Like it's interesting because, uh, my brother and I are different in the way I think of things very communally. <laughs> and he grew up in a very similar environment, but he's like, no, I grew up with all these people in my space and I just want my own space. <laughs> you know, I don't want to do that. Right. So it's interesting how. 
you can kind of get different reactions from two people growing up in, in, in that similar environment. But you're right. I mean, I think that's also why I hope what we bring, you know, I, I never intended this to be about my story. I really want this to be, and by this, I mean Nesmith, like, but but I, I want this to be about other people's stories. And as we've helped other groups of people make it happen, it's been really exciting to make it about their story. But I do realize that, you know, having that initial kind of reality has led to this and will help us build, I think, the right brand and will help us kind of stay aligned that we're doing the right things by our, our customers. I want to come back to the whole interest rate environment thing for a moment. I put a pin in it, but I had a follow-up question on this. So do you feel like if rates remain higher than we want for longer than we want, that these kinds of conditions would act as a almost like a market catalyst for Nesmint and your growth trajectory because of, say, pricing pressures or affordability of, say, carrying a mortgage alone? Yes, I, it definitely will. I mean, the headwinds in this market are, are tailwinds for disruption and, and are tailwinds for new models. And there's two things that you can change in this situation, right? You can change supply or you can change demand, right? Um, and supply takes a lot of time. It, it also is difficult because then as we were, were land is one of those things that you're, you know, you're physically kind of hamstrung and constrained, but we can change the demand side of the equation, right? And so if we're able to change the demand side of the equation by, you know, if it costs you double to buy the same home, well, add a friend, add a, add a roommate, add a, and this is also why I think you might see this happen earlier and earlier for folks like in, in their, you know, mid twenties coming out of college, even, you know, or grad school and saying like, Hey, we're all willing to live together, right. And own a place together and start our, our real estate journey this way. This is not our forever home, but rather than paying rent, we have the opportunity to live in a home together or have a rental home or property, that type of thing. So I see this being an incredible market catalyst. I, I think, you know, home ownership is and rethinking home ownership is probably one of the biggest consumer opportunities out there right now, just because, I mean, we have 58 million millennials who are priced out of the market in a $45 trillion market. And, uh, you know, it, it's ripe for us to rethink that. Speaking of areas of disruption, you know, from a very high level, you hear about investors saying, you know, if you're a middleman or a middle person, and you are brokering a transaction, then you are ripe for disruption at some point. And I think a lot of people have been talking about said real estate agents, right? And their ability to sort of sit in the middle of these transactions, both the demand side and supply side, and, and take a commission off of what people view as very little added value, especially in overheated housing markets like San Francisco or New York or Toronto, LA, et cetera. Do you feel like Nesmint has a play here in terms of your ability to disrupt the agency side of things? So I think the agency model will need to evolve, but actually we see the agent ecosystem as a really important ecosystem to partner with <laughs> in a way, actually. 
So we still think that there's needs to be that human touch in these high transaction environments, right? And so, you know, ultimately we have on our team relationship managers, right? And these relationship managers, it's amazing how much, I mean, I think what's pretty incredible is is just how people are entrusting us to purchase, you know, you know, real estate and how do these large transactions. And our relationship managers have experience being agents, actually, which is great in their repertoire. So I actually see a way in which we can rethink these models. Here's another way in which you rethink this model. Instead of selling one house, instead of helping someone buy a house and then selling it maybe in 10-year time frame, could you start to think about yourself as, as helping sell multiple fractions of a house? So you're selling the same house over twice over maybe in that 10-year time frame, right? So I think there's new ways for us to engage with the agent ecosystem and involve it. I think it, what it's up to us is actually to create kind of more demand type of models and then create the tools, or at least that's what I'm going to be more in the business of, is rather than disintermediating the agent per se, letting the agent play the human role that I think is always going to need to be played and then getting better and better at the technology role. So you launched the beta in February. You're into your next inning, let's say. You've got California as a market, obviously by default. How are you thinking about expansion and how easy is it for you to expand across the US and potentially into other countries? It's interesting. Actually, you know, our our first transaction was New York, interestingly enough. Now it's California. We've got some in Philly, Jersey, like everywhere. The interesting thing about this model is that, you know, once you have, we spent a lot of time building national partners and having coverage both on partner agents, on lending, on all of that, and getting national data. So we're actually able to enable any transaction in this process, filing you know, your, your entity in, in any of those states as well. So the US, obviously, there's certain state differences that we, we come across and, and we work on those. You tend to find people looking in the same places, though, to be quite frank, you know, in certain markets and so forth. So this next stage, you know, has been about we ended up getting so much demand that we actually had to stop demand for a little while and, and had to put people on the wait list. And we're going to open that back up again. But we really wanted to spend the time with each of our groups and say, okay, let's make sure we get you to your transaction. So, you know, building up this robust kind of database and content base for every state that we we work in. Now, internationally is something that we've been asked about and and I'm really interested in too. Like eventually like how do we potentially own a home together, you know, if you're US based and you want to buy internationally. And then there's actually taking this model into an international market. Interestingly, like from just some early preliminary research in the UK, this is actually a model that again doesn't have a platform or structure per se, but it's culturally something you see a lot of people do in their 20s is to purchase a flat together. So I think that's going to be, you know, you know, after I would say I'd, I'd spend another few more years here in the US, but I think we'll start to figure out what are some of those next markets that we go to. Well, we're ready for you here in Toronto. At, uh, <laughs> Maybe uh, we start Canada first. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 1100 to $1,500 a square foot, depending on where you are in the city. We are as expensive as it gets in terms of North American housing costs. Niles, 
really a great pleasure to talk to you today. Where can people follow you on social, follow what you're up to at Nesmint? Where can people connect with you online? Yeah. Um, so Nesmint.com, if you want to learn more about the site, you can also nest.ment is our Instagram handle. You can also follow me at the Niles Project and uh, can see some of the other interesting things. We published a children's book and did some other fun things that, you know, um, while the sole focus is Nesmint, you know, we as people have different parts to our personality. And so we'd like to share that. And um, and yeah, follow me on LinkedIn as well. I, I, we do a lot of posting and updates on LinkedIn and uh, that's Niles.Lichtenstein at LinkedIn. So yeah, thank you so much for having me, Adam. And thank you for the, the incredibly thoughtful questions. Oh, it's a great pleasure. For those that are interested in the kids book, it's called Boundless Brooklyn. And I recommend people quickly Google search that. And we're waiting for our copy over here in Toronto. I got you. Send me that address. It'll be there in a sec. Thanks so much, Adam. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter until next time make today count with whatever it is you're working on ever thought about starting your own podcast do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world well now it's easier than ever with electricast hi i'm mark netter and i'm peter rafelson we're the founders of electricast media whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one join electricast to grow your audience monetize your content and build your community with our simple sign up you get free promotion world-class analytics premium ads and personal support go to electricast.com and join our community today Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a beautiful different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric Ash.